Are you good? All right. Oh, when is it? All right, leadership meeting this Sunday after service. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for Scripture that reveals to us your love, your grace. Thank you for giving us a measure of faith, each one of us, as promised. For Scripture says in Romans 1.17, For the righteous man shall live by faith. Thank you for giving us the faith to forgive as it is motivated by love. We are most grateful and thankful for that same pattern on a cross 2,000 years ago that made an evening like this one a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel of Salvation and Sanctification, Part 95. I'm picking up where I left off a couple of weeks back. Uh, but before we do that, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the series on forgiveness was perfectly placed, and I'm not surprised given it's the Spirit's doing. So let me give you some of the highlights that I gleaned from our mini-series on hindering God's love means hindering your sanctification. First and foremost, God sees the heart. That's First Samuel 16, 7. Therefore, on the topic of forgiveness, living in pretense with a question mark, you can't pretend to forgive your brother and harbor bitterness without God knowing it. So, what the Spirit's really saying is it's not sufficient just to do, you know, like when you were kids, go tell your brother you're sorry. And they're like, sorry. And nobody's really sorry. That kind of a thing doesn't fly with God. Because God sees the heart. So you can't pretend to forgive your brother and harbor bitterness without God knowing it. I was thinking about it as I've taught you in the past. God's will is that He affects discipline on sinners. Not fellow man, strictly speaking. He may use an individual, maybe someone in authority, this kind of a thing. But for the most part, God's will is that He affects discipline on sinners. And as I've written and spoken on the topic, it's enough for man to have to deal with his own conscience. It's enough. Especially, I'm speaking to my congregation and I'm speaking this way because I know you all and I know you understand what I'm saying. It's enough for man to have to deal with his own conscience. He doesn't need religious police adding their own versions of justice to the mix. So if you've been sinned against, what did the Spirit say? Forgive. Why? Because there's a certain heaviness in unforgiveness. Do you want to be weighed down your entire life? Be an unforgiving person. That's one surefire way of being miserable the rest of your life. So, if you're struggling with forgiveness, then ask God for it. It's amazing. People won't ask. They still think that it's something from their human side. That it's something that the flesh does. No. If you're struggling with forgiveness, then ask God for it. Ask Him to give it to you. As Scott taught, as a, 
as a conduit, as a vessel. Ask and you shall receive. Confess your weaknesses. Confess your weaknesses. If you don't, you'll be stuck holding something quite heavy over the heads of all the people you've refused to forgive. And you will grow weary. So confess your weaknesses. It's very possible that every one of us in here has a particular weakness in the area of forgiveness. Maybe we don't like to forgive. That in of itself is a weakness. And we have to confess it. And when we confess it, then we go to Him in prayer and say, Father, please give it to me. Give me a measure of faith so that I might be forgiving. So that I might share your heart on this topic. Otherwise, you are going to grow very weary. I was thinking about it. Doesn't, doesn't even natural wisdom say that doing something that bears no good fruit, unforgiveness bears no good fruit, but taxes you horribly is a bad investment of your time and energy? I mean, you really want to be the person that goes through life and after everyone that they've not forgiven, has died and passed along, you're still bitter on your bed? Do you want to be that person? Do you want to be that worn out at the end of your life? Because that's not from God. I think it's fair to say that some of the most weary people in this world are the ones still holding up the weight of unforgiveness. Stated differently, the heaviness of unforgiveness. It takes a concentrated effort even to oppose God on the subject of forgiveness. We know what Scripture says. That's what the five-part series was on. Forgive. If someone sins against you, forgive. It actually takes a concentrated effort to oppose God on the subject of forgiveness. That means you're expending energy on it needlessly when you could be set free. So it is very unwise to abide in unforgiveness. So if that describes you, seek Scripture. Go to James 1, verse 5. James 1, verse 5. If that's you, then seek Scripture. Ask God. Stop trying to force it. You can't fake it. You might say to yourself, but I'm not there yet. I can't do it yet. Fine. That's called confession. That's what it means to confess your weaknesses. But don't fake it. James 1.5 But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. It's wise to forgive. It's unwise to not forgive. <laughs> so if you lack wisdom, ask God. Why can't I do this, Lord? I want to forgive. I mean, fundamentally, academically, I'd like to forgive. But my heart hasn't changed on the subject. I just can't stand that person. It's really hard for me to forgive them. I didn't like them before they offended me. Now that they've offended me, ah, it's like, you know, how do you say it? Lock, stock, and barrel. This is over there somewhere. That's not Christ's heart at all. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask, here it is, in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything 
from the Lord, being a double-minded, remember that double-souled, dipsukas, double-souled man, unstable in all his ways. In other words, listen, one of the great sources of instability in the spiritual life is unforgiveness. As we saw in, uh, what is it, Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. I didn't realize that how chock full Matthew 6 was. I mean, it's, I'm embarrassed to say it. But it took a focused effort like that series to draw my attention to the number of times the word forgive or forgiveness or some derivative actually showed up in that passage. It's overwhelming. So if you want to be unstable, then you live in unforgiveness. This is opposed to the heaviness, or this opposed to, uh, opposed to the heaviness of unforgiveness, we have the lightness of forgiveness. The wise believer goes out of their way to make peace. James 3.13-18, go there. James 3.13, the lightness of forgiveness. The wise believer goes out of their way to make peace. As I said earlier, you know, God doesn't need police, religious police. He doesn't need any one of us adding to the uh, discipline or the justice that He sees fit to administer by not forgiving someone, by trying to cause them pain by not forgiving them. James 3.13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, there's the anti-stability if you would, unwavering or anti-instability, unwavering without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Romans 1.17 says, The righteous man shall live by faith. Therefore, he has faith that when he forgives, God is taking the burden from him. That is fruit and righteousness, my friends. That is sowing peace. The righteous man shall live by faith. Therefore, he has faith that when he forgives, God is taking the burden from him. It's like handing over a really heavy kettlebell and saying, you take it. I forgive. And that's what the Spirit's been pointing out. And all of it, of course, is motivated by love. I like the way Scott had put this up here with the capital give. Forgiveness. To forgive requires giving. And love can't help but give. Love cannot help but express itself. Love gives, even when the flesh is repulsed by even the thought of it. For example, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Big deal. You forgive those who you, quote, love or who you have a certain affection for. Why? 
probably because you're self-motivated. Arguably, you just want to get back in the good graces because you like that person. But what happens when you don't like the person? Where's your motivation? Is the love the same? Because love, there, aren't, you know, there aren't variations of love. Every perfect gift is from above. There's no shifting shadow or variation because it's from God. So there's no variation of love. If you're a loving person, then you're a forgiving person. It doesn't matter. I think of Christ on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If anybody had a reason to despise someone, it was the people he was looking at who nailed him to the cross and were mocking him. But he didn't do that. So what good is it if you love and are able to give forgiveness to those that you love? Matthew 5.46 up here on the board distinguishes between selfish and selfless lovers. Selfish versus selfless lovers. Selfless lovers are intrinsically free to love because they give without any strings attached. Give, forgive. They forgive without any strings attached. So selfless lovers are intrinsically free because they give without any strings attached. Something absolutely crucial to true forgiveness. You can't say, you know, I forgive you, and then say, keep score. For the Bible says we are to overlook the transgressions of others. When we forgive, we have the water of the Spirit and the Word wash over us. Our consciences. I'm talking about the person who's forgiving. Until you forgive, your conscience is defiled. Until you forgive, something's not going to be right. And the Holy Spirit's not going to say to you, it's okay to not forgive that person because they're real jackasses. Being washed clean of sin. True confession towards a repentant sinner is forgiveness. We are cleansed from the power of sin, experiential sanctification in view, when we confess that we've harbored unforgiveness against those who've sinned against us. So if you want a clear conscience, you want to be washed clean, you want that cleansing to occur in your soul, then guess what? You have to give forgiveness. Otherwise, your conscience is defiled, my friend. That confession, then, is cleansing. Go to Isaiah 55.1. That may sound backwards the first time a person hears it, the first time they read Jesus' own words on the topic. But nonetheless, as we know in Isaiah 55, God's ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55.1. I mean, think about it. Even if, you have to, even if you have to separate from somebody because they're just too far this way or too far that way, that still doesn't mean there's a lack of forgiveness. It just means you have to separate for other reasons. There's other scriptures that handle things beyond just the mental attitude, if you would, or the heart issue of forgiveness. So don't confuse these things. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money, you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. 
Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. You see what he's saying? Hand it over to the Supreme Court of Heaven. Hand the issue over to God. That's not going to happen if you're still holding up a kettlebell over someone's head. Oh, remember. Remember what you did to me. That's not handing it over at all. That's you exerting some kind of force or trying to enforce some kind of justice, personal justice, which is wicked, over someone else. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, the point on the board, being washed clean of sin. If you are unforgiving, you are in a sinful state. True confession towards a repentant sinner is forgiveness. We are cleansed from the power of sin, experiential sanctification in view, when we confess that we've harbored unforgiveness against those who've sinned against us. When we forgive we have the water of the Spirit and the Word wash over us. This is why the Spirit took, just took us to a passage that confounds the flesh. <laughs> Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. That's confounding to the flesh. The reality of that is confounding to the flesh. On Tuesday, the Spirit made a very astute point on the topic of love being the ultimate motivation for forgiveness, particularly that your love may not be God's love. Your love may not be God's love. Reflect for a moment. Even the flesh is able to love, quote, others whom they find attractive in some way. Is that not fair to say? Even the flesh is can love others whom they find attractive in some way. But, as we noted, Jesus had something else to say on the subject that certainly does echo Isaiah 55.8 up here on the board, Matthew 5.44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Find that in the world. Not on a poster where people write things down or some flip notepad or something like that, and people are sort of all, you know, gay about it. And I'm not talking about that. We're talking about heart issues here. How many people are able to abide in that? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
What did Jesus do on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. McDonald said it this way, but now Jesus announces that we are to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. The fact that love is commanded shows that it is a matter of the will and not primarily of the emotions. It is not the same as natural affection because it is not natural to love those who hate and harm you. It is a supernatural grace and can be manifested only by those who have divine life. So why all this work on forgiveness in the midst of our curriculum on experiential sanctification? Well, first of all, up here on the board, loving our enemies. I mean, look, we're not of the world, but we're in it. There are few who find the gate. Chances are there's many more of them than there are of us. That means we're in a cesspool. And if you're not a friend of God, then you're His enemy. If you're a friend of the world, then what? You're an enemy of God. So says Scripture. So here we are in the middle of our enemies, in the enemy camp nonetheless. And yet he says, love them. That's what Christ did. Love them. But, but, love them. And if they wrong you, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't even know what they're doing. How can you hold, how can you even have much more than a knee jerk animosity towards someone who's literally ignorant? Loving our enemies, it's not about us, and it's not even about them. It's about the Lord and the immeasurable amount of forgiveness He has given us. This is where we find our motivation. And there is the miracle the power of God in man. It's easy to understand forgiveness as it relates to experiential sanctification given the simple fact that we humans are predisposed to colliding with each other. Raise your hand if you did not have some kind of conflict or contention in your life this week. Today? The last 12 hours? See, I'd probably have to go till the time you came in. Unless you've been wrestling with the Spirit, but that's between you and God. Most people, I mean, you can walk from your car to the door. And there's probably something in your soul that's trying to, you know, contend with you. Contend with your peace. To take those things away from you. To rob you. That's what we call experiential experiential sanctification terms. The power of sin. That little problem that you had walking to the door won't exist in heaven. Why? Because the very presence of sin will be gone. That's what we call ultimate sanctification. But for now, we're in the middle of the world. And the power of sin is at arguably an all-time high. It's awful. So it's easy to understand forgiveness because we are constantly running into other people who have flesh. And when we collide, there are often bumps and bruises, whether it's me elbowing you in the ribs or you jabbing me in the shoulder. Inevitably, someone's sinning and someone's being sinned against. Is that fair? Inevitably. Someone's sinning and someone's being sinned against. So that gives us a certain kind of perspective up here on the board. 
Ultimately, regardless of who we might be sinning against, every sin is an offense to God. Go to 2 Samuel 12.1. 2 Samuel 12.1. This is where we see the man after God's own heart, David. I like to think of him as a humble example, a good example of humility. But he failed. But he knew something in his failure. He knew something. He knew who the greater offense was towards. 2 Samuel 12.1 Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat off of of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul, I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Didn't he kill Uriah the Hittite? Yeah. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. And that might echo of, you know, the simple fact that God is not mocked. David might not have been killed. God had other plans for him, but he certainly did suffer. But the point is, on the board, ultimately, regardless of who we might be sinning against, every sin is an offense to God. Later on, David wrote on this same subject with a humble, contrite heart, something we can all learn from. If we've sinned, we need to confess it to all parties. And as the Spirit taught us this past week, we must do it post-haste. Go to Psalm 51.1. 1. 
Psalm 51.1. Otherwise, your conscience is going to suffer. Psalm 51.1. The very first person, I remember, think about, confession just means to agree with. The very first person that you need to confess your sin to is God. Psalm 51.1 Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. This is David. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Remember, it's wise to confess your sins. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Again, the point of the board for the sake of perspective is ultimately, regardless of who we might be sinning against, every sin is an offense to God. To our previous point, though, knowing that God is love, think about this again. God is love. Love cannot help but express itself. Love gives, even when the flesh is repulsed by even the thought of it. Some people might actually say, how could God possibly give to me? The flesh would be repulsed that God might generously, graciously give to you after sinning. Might be repulsed by it. Might say to you you in a self-condemning way, you don't deserve His love. You deserve His punishment. You don't deserve His grace or His mercy. You deserve to rot in hell. That's the flesh. The flesh is repulsed by any form of grace or godly love. The flesh is utterly unforgiving. Utterly unforgiving. Why? The whole premise of creature credit is keeping score. The whole premise of creature credit is trying to one-up your neighbor. The whole premise of creature credit is to keep score so that you can not overlook the transgressions of another person. Constantly bring them up. Throw them up in their face. That's what the flesh loves to do, and it does it in your own soul. So, This kind of love, regardless of who's doing the forgiving, who's sinned, the flesh hates it. Matthew 5.46 distinguishes between selfish selfish and selfish, selfless lovers. Ask yourselves, just to dig a little deeper, did we love God before He saved us? No, not really. Is he the epitome of selfish or selfless giving? It's true. We didn't love God before he saved us, yet Scripture states, go to Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8. 
we did a lot of work with Paul before I left on vacation, that sort of one-way binding, if you would, him loving and that love not being reciprocated, him forgiving consistently. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love gives. Love forgives. So herein lies the crux of the entire series Scott just taught. And the funny thing is, I don't think he actually had this in a slide. But to me, this is what stood out. He said it, obviously moved by the Spirit. Living in forgiveness. We've got to go back to the cross every day of our lives. Forgiveness is an attitude that becomes us. And I was thinking about Psalm 51, 12, part A. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Shouldn't that be our prayer every morning or every night? You know, if you had a hard day, shouldn't that be, you know, when we've lost our way, when the world has just knocked us, you know, off kilter? And you know how it is. You're over here, you're laying in bed, you're having maybe a little trouble laying, you know, laying down, even after prayer or something, and you're still not right. Maybe this is what you pray. Maybe you pray the way David prayed. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's the point of the board. We've got to get back to the cross every day of our lives. That's what this entire series, we're on part 95. 95 hours on the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. Why do you think that is? Because the gospel literally, from faith to faith, the gospel literally is the centerpiece of our existence. It's why we are who we are. It's why we're new creatures. It's why we've been made new. It's fulfilling God's purpose in that very activity, all because of the gospel. And we didn't deserve it, for while we were yet still sinners, God saved us. (laughs) We didn't even know what the heck love was from Him. You know, a little bit. So maybe that should be our prayer every night, to restore us to the joy of salvation Forgiveness is an attitude that becomes us. Now, I'm not sure about all you, but I was blown away by Psalm 8. Go to Psalm 8, 1. Psalm 8, verse 1. Psalm 8, verse 1. got to go back to the cross every day of our lives. Psalm 8.1 O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? In other words, look at the immensity of his creation and then look at your life. (laughs) Kind of comical, right? But yet sometimes we think the entire world revolves around little old us. 
And if the whole world doesn't comply, we have problems. And I'm not going to forgive you because don't you realize that this world is supposed to revolve around me? I'm an egocentric jackass, and I expect everybody to revolve around me. Well, how's that fit with Psalm 8, 4? Or Psalm 8 as a whole? Seriously? You're just a vapor. Poof. So says Scripture. Here today, gone tomorrow. Gone. What is man that you take thought of him? Seriously. This, we're talking about the creator of the universe. The one who is eternal. The construct of time doesn't even come into play. And yet we want the world to revolve around us and we get PO'd when no one else complies. And the Son of Man that you care for Him, yet you have made Him a little lower than God and you crown Him with glory and majesty. Seriously? Not only do you pay attention to me, not only have you done all this work for me, not only do I have a salvation that I can live in, but then you're going to crown me with glory and majesty? Seriously? You're going to make me royalty? You're going to adopt me so I can say, Abba, Father, thank you for all of eternity? Seriously, is this for real? Somebody pinch me. That's a far cry than making yourself the center of the universe and being angry at everyone and everything else, including God, that people don't cater to you. You make, verse 6, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How in the world did we sinners become crowned with glory and majesty? How's that going to happen? Love. That's the point on the board. You've been forgiven. Love gives. If you weren't forgiven, you'd have a problem. You'd be going to the lake of fire. You do realize that. Yeah, but that's old news. What have you done for me lately? God, don't you know I have needs? And he scoffs at those things and says, those aren't needs. Those are wants that you've defined as needs. You don't know needs. We've got to go back to the cross every day of our lives. Forgiveness is an attitude that becomes us. Love hung on the cross. Remember that. We wouldn't even be having this dialogue tonight if that wasn't true. You'd have a lot more to complain about than your piddly little vapor of a life. But they wronged me! (laughs) Seriously? Seriously? What have you done to God? Just today. Think about some of the stuff... I don't know, I, I, see, I can't, two weeks is long for me. By the end of two weeks, I'm having horrible thoughts sometimes. I'm like, where the heck is that coming from? And I'm saying to myself, God, what are you saying? He must be like, you need to get back to the pulpit, man. You're grotesque right now. 
<laughs> Nobody gets like that? It's just me? I'm the only ass? Yeah. All right. That's cool. Love hung on the cross. We got to go back to the cross every day of our lives. Forgiveness is an attitude that becomes us. This is what it means to live in the gospel reality. And I like this slide from Tuesday's message. Be a vassal of His love. Receive His love and forgive your brother with it. Receive His love and love your enemies with it. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Philippians 4.13 Love it. We had lessons on being, right? Be. Don't pretend. Be. One last thing that came up in my own soul when I listened to Tuesday evening's class specifically on the topic of experiential sanctification and this is going to require some concentration. God will humiliate you. You might say, how dare He? Wait, what? Seriously? Back up there, Chachi. God will humiliate you. And your response should be, thank you. Why? All right, stop. Don't even, don't even read it. I know everybody's already reading it. You already finished it. Stop it. Right? Think of, think of a humiliating moment that you've had recently. Why were you humiliated? Why? Because your friends saw you? Your family? Your co-workers? Why were you humili- humiliated? Seriously, what was the reason for it? Did it have anything to do with God? Were you simply blinded by your situation? What others might think of you? Oh my goodness. I walked out of Walmart and my shorts fell down to my ankles. That didn't really happen. My week wasn't that bad. What would be your problem with that? Why wouldn't you just laugh and pick up your shorts and get on your way? Hope they don't arrest you. Seriously. Someone not laugh at your joke? What? Someone didn't like your new hairpiece? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be silly for a reason. Because what it's doing, what is, what's humiliation all about? Who's, the, who's got the problem in humiliation, after all? Think about that. Now, let's read it, since you've already never, you definitely have not read it, I know. God will humiliate you. God will change Abolition by grace as it is given to the humble. As necessary, He will humiliate you in order to bring this about. He will hit you where it hurts the most. Maybe it's your pride or your reputation or you fill in the blank. Whatever the case, He will provide you with humility. Who gives you humility after all? He does. Remember Isaiah 55, 8? His ways are not your ways. You might say, how dare he do that? You mean he's going to humiliate me? Yeah, he may have to. And he will. God will change our volition by grace as it is given to the humble. As necessary, He will humiliate you in order to bring this about. He will hit you where it hurts the most. 
Maybe it's your pride or your reputation or your you fill in the blank. Whatever the case, He will provide you with humility. And remember, it's not always your way. He may not actually go, okay, let's go frolic through the tulips. <laughs> Isn't this a gale day? <laughs> oh, it's raining out. You just stay home. No. Get outside and go do this thing for me. But my hair. And you're like this. And then you see a long lost boyfriend from high school. And lo and behold, you look like a wet mop. And you're humiliated. What are you going to do? Maybe he says, good, I don't want you to be that other person. I want you to be my evangelist. I don't want that guy to look at you that way anymore. I want you to be my evangelist in this moment. That guy needs saving. Give him the gospel. What's your problem? Why are you so humiliated? But, I, but yeah, that's your flesh. What are you worried about? Just remember, he doesn't do things the way you think he's going to do them. I realize the point in the board is a what I would coin a maturity perspective, but please do yourselves a favor and really dwell on it. And just so you don't think you're alone, let me give you a recent example of where my own humility was put to the test. And I'll be honest, I didn't pass it right away. It took some unique humiliation delivered up by an agent of God on my behalf. I wrote a blog not that long ago that when I finished was like, I love it. This is awesome. And I always, just so you know, I always sit back and I go, I don't know how you just did that because a lot of times I'm writing these things at 6 in the morning, 5 to nine or something like that, or five to eight. It's really early. I'm, I just look back and I go, I can't believe you just wrote that through me, but thanks, it was fun. So I look back and it was one of those days, I'm like, I love it, this is awesome, this is going to be edifying. And it was a wonderfully written blog, and God gets the credit, of course. And then one of my reviewers pointed out that the title might be offensive to a certain group of people in this world. And in my defense... I said, but that's not my intention at all. My heart, my heart, is pure on the subject. And, they, and if they read the blog with an open heart, they'll understand that. If they know me, they'll understand that I don't mean anything by that title at all. And so I really wasn't necessarily wrong in my statement. It's true. If they knew my heart, they wouldn't have had a problem with the title at all. But here's the catch and concentrate. And again, God will humiliate you. You may have a certain liberty, and God knows that you don't stumble as a result of it. You are free. To me, I could have written anything as a title, and my heart was pure, so I was like, hey, whatever, this is fun, right? You are free. However, others that you come into contact with may not share in that liberty due to immaturity. God will humiliate you in a good way to His glory so that you don't make others stumble. God will humiliate you in a good way to His glory 
so that you don't make others stumble. For example, 1 Corinthians 8, 9 to 13. We'll get there in a second. So in my case with the blog, after moaning about it for some time, I even fought with this person. (laughs) I changed the title of the blog. Why? Because I went away and prayed on it, and and not only did this person bring it up, I got kind of punched in the throat by God. So after moaning it about it, I changed the title of the blog. Not for me, though. For me, it was fine. For God knew my good heart, but for others. For others. And James 4.17 comes to mind. The one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to that person, it's a sin. Go to 1 Corinthians 8.9. 1 Corinthians 8.9. So he's building up to something. This is just a scenario he wanted me to bring up for you. A practical one that involves forgiveness. Involves real sin. 1 Corinthians 8.9. But... Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Paul's not saying that there's anything wrong with these things. Matter of fact, in the preceding verse, he says there's nothing wrong with eating these things. But your brother has a weakness. So you sin against Christ. Verse 13, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, and you can put a variable in there, X, if X causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat X again. I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Again, up here on the board, God will humiliate you. You may have a certain liberty, and God knows that you don't stumble as a result of it. You are free. However, others that you come into contact with may not share in that liberty due to immaturity. God will humiliate you in a good way to His glory so that you don't make others stumble. So I think I'll leave you with just a couple of thoughts. But here's a question that you can dwell on based on the point on the board. Who's the sinner? Remember, sinners require forgiveness. Who's the sinner if a mature person makes a weaker person stumble because they are exercising a God-given liberty? If you are all alone, not a problem. But we don't live all alone. We run into each other all the time. So who's the sinner? If a mature person makes a weaker person stumble because they're exercising a God-given liberty, who should seek forgiveness then? 
For example, suppose I refused to be adjusted regarding the aforementioned blog title, and lo and behold, I made a whole group of people stumble. Who does God hold responsible? Me. To whom much is given, much is required. <laughs> Luke 12:48b From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. And since I've got the time, there's a little dangling thread here from our lessons this past week. I'm just protecting you on a certain subject. There was nothing wrong with the content itself, but I just want to protect you from doing something that some of you are famous for doing. Let's put it that way. To whom much is given, much is required. So this is why, as a side note, I just want to caution you all on the three-step process that William MacDonald outlined on forgiveness. As helpful as it is, please do not make a doctrine out of it. Do not make a doctrine out of those three steps. It was useful. I know what the guy was saying, this kind of a thing, and I know why it was presented. But do not make a doctrine out of it. McDonald's steps are merely a depiction of how the process might go, but it's hardly ever that well-defined. Humility is the key. For example, a person may be so weak, a person may be so weak that you may have to tell them up front that they are forgiven as a show of mercy and grace. Which is, quote, out of order. (laughs) If you run off and make a doctrine out of something like what McDonald wrote, and just trying to make a specific point on a particular passage. That's why there's nothing, that's why it's nothing wrong, many times, there's nothing wrong with content, right? There's nothing wrong with the content that's being taught. It's how one receives it. Don't run off and make that mistake. Don't run off and make that doctrine. Don't say, okay, I don't remember any of the scriptures that was taught for five lessons, but I remember these three steps. You don't follow these three steps, mister. It's off. No forgiveness for you. One year. No soup. Right? It's off. Don't do that. Please, please do not do that. The dynamic spiritual life is much more fluid, much more robust than that. It's about humility. If the, if the situation calls for it, like this situation with Paul and with the Corinthians with food, look, if someone's so weak that you have to approach them, maybe even before you think it would be the right time to approach, say with somebody else, you may have to do it. Why? For their sake. Who knows? God, the Holy Spirit, they don't ask me. Don't say, well, then if it's not that protocol, then what protocol is it? Is it five steps? Is it two steps? Which one is it? Because in my notebook, it's right here. Now i gotta, now I got to screw it up. I had just memorized, went home and memorized. That's, this is what Joey told me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just don't do it, okay? That was it's a little dangling thread. I just am protecting you. That's it. 
Anytime lists come up, I always get weary. Oh, here we go. I know what the guy's saying. It was well taught, good stuff. Just don't make that mistake. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.